the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are fortunate to be alive at this moment in history. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The truth is plain to see. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin of The Answer, San Diego. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin, and it's the Pro-America Report. Thank you for watching on Periscope at Eagle Ed Martin. And, of course, thank you for tuning in on the radio. Great to be together. This is the opening segment. Of course, it's the Pro-America Report, Ed Martin. And we will, I'll tell you, we go through a lot and you got to check it out. You've got to go to edmartinlive.com and get the daily email that I send out. But we'll cover a lot of ground. But first off, you're going to hear what you need to know. Today's Daily Wink, I'll go through it in a minute. It has to do with Pelosi, Ryan, and the Speaker of the House and what Pelosi's priorities are. I'll walk you through that and why it's just so important to understand that elections matter. Later on in the, in the show, yeah, I just saw that the press secretary earlier today called out Nancy Pelosi for what she's doing. It was good. I mean, you know, again, it's uh, uh, Pelosi doesn't care because she's her position is secure. But we'll talk about that in a few moments on the radio show. And you can always go and track down the radio show uh, later on in the day. You can go to the answer, San or edmartinlive.com. We will talk to a couple of great guests. One of the guests will talk to will tell us his name is Ron Kessler. You've heard about Ron Kessler, I'm sure, before. Ron Kessler will walk us through his latest column Kessler has written about 20 books. One of them is on the Secret Service. And he went in and interviewed dozens and dozens of Secret Service agents. And he talks about what they say life was like under Hillary, under Bush, all this stuff. Well, he has the inside story on Joe Biden and how he treated his Secret Service agents. So we'll talk with Ron Kessler in a minute. All right. But let us get to, oh, one more thing. Today is the flags are flying half mast at federal buildings, half a staff, and in some states too. I think. I think I saw Florida's Ron DeSantis did. I imagine most places where they have uh, sort of uh, good leaders, they're doing it. But it's Fallen Officers' Day, and so it's a day just to pause and mark uh, so many officers who fall in the line of duty. And that's what you're seeing. If you're seeing those flags up, I hope you'll uh, have a, take a moment and have a good thought and a prayer for those uh, who have fallen in the line of duty. And even more, as I often tell people. The ones that have fallen in the line of duty, it's a tragedy. What's left behind is such an amazing, pain, uh, painful thing to see. You know, when you have an officer get killed, I have a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine that are uh, cops up in Jersey City, and, you know, they had some, had some uh, terrible tragedies. And when they do, these families that are left behind, it's just a terrible burden. And so uh, we'll, that's what today's um, Fallen Officers Day, uh, honoring those folks. And we keep them in our prayers, and, and certainly it's very powerful. All right, but well, let's get to what you need to know today. What you need to know today is if you're watching the TV 
or, or paying attention to C-SPAN or whatever, you saw that the House of Representatives was in session. And they were voting not on big legislation, not on things that mattered, not on how we can go uh, secure the border, build the wall, uh, you know, stop the uh, the Chinese uh, from infiltrating us. No, no. It was Nancy Pelosi proposing to allow proxy voting so that the members of Congress who get paid, whether they're in, in, in office or not, I mean, in the building or not, whether they're working or not, they get paid. They have a huge they get a huge salary. They get huge benefits. They get their own doctor. They get everything they need. They get per diem for spending for their food. They get taken to their tra- care of travel. And then they get campaign funds. They're mostly in gerrymandered districts, so they can't be beaten. They have a pretty cushy life. And they can't be bothered because of the uh, coronavirus, because of the Chinese virus. They can't be bothered to come and work. And so Nancy Pelosi has devised a scheme to say, huh, never let a crisis get in the way of, uh, of making change, dramatic change. And so she proposed today, and it passed, that members of the House of Representatives can gather proxy votes. Up to 10 votes per person can be carried. So a member of Congress can carry 10 votes. So you're talking about 22 people, 22 members of Congress can get 10 each, and they can control that. You talk about a, a, an oligarchy. You talk about a, a back room. 22 Democrats can get 10 votes each from their other members and get in a room and pass legislation. Can you imagine? I, it, it, as Louis Gohmert was up on the floor, he said it's unconstitutional, it's, but it's also it shows what they care about. They don't care about the deliberative process. They don't care about any kind of debate. They don't care about any truth. They don't care about any representation. They care about power, pure power. Remember when Nancy Pelosi was elected, her number one bill, House Resolution number one was get rid of the included get rid of the electoral college uh, mandatory uh, 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 mail in voting you know uh, uh, you know kind of um, uh, uh, rolling voting not not election day voting all this kind of stuff that was the priorities of the Democrats is to game the system to change the rules so that's to their advantage and what happens to conservatives is they say let's keep a system let's keep a system that allows every person to vote on election day that allows every vote to count that protects the integrity of the system. But here's the difference. Let me just show you the difference. And this is what you need to know today. This is the difference between people who care about power and people who care about principle and people who live up to what they say. So here's what Pelosi did. She doesn't hide it. Pelosi does not hide the simple fact that she cares most about getting the elections her way. If she has to rig the elections by changing the rules, she'll do it. If she has to fundraise to to, uh, lie about what people's positions are, she'll do it. If she has to go out and ballot harvest in California to flip the House, she'll do it. She doesn't care about we the people. She cares about power, but she doesn't hide it. And the Speaker of the House has that power like she did today. But here's the difference, and here's what you need to know. You know who had the power? I, I was on the phone today, earlier today, with a gentleman from Richmond, Virginia. His name is Bill Thomas. He's a very, very smart guy. He's a lawyer. He's uh, the head of the James Monroe uh, Foundation. He's a kind of historian. And Bill Thomas has been around. He's probably 65 or so. He's been around. He's been involved in politics. But he's mostly a good old-fashioned conservative. And he said to me, I'll never forgive Paul Ryan. And I thought, me neither. Let's make a list. You know, for me, he said, Paul Ryan said for 25 years he would, he was a pro-lifer. And when he got to be Speaker of the House, he didn't defund Planned Parenthood because it was too hard. But my friend Bill Thomas didn't even bring that up. He said, Ed, when, when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House and we had control of the Senate and we had the presidency and we had a conservative government for a period of time, 
the one thing that could have been done that could have protected our uh, republic for a long time was a federal photo ID requirement for voting. He told me this this morning. And as I watched today, Pelosi use raw power to change the Constitution. She just changed the Constitution. You don't have to be present to vote in the U.S. House. You just have to have enough power amassed by Nancy Pelosi and her 21 other henchmen, and they can do what they want. And watch that. And I thought of Bill Thomas. And what you need to know is when the power came to the Republican Party and they had a chance to, re- to, to, def- to defend and protect the republic with photo ID, a photo ID requirement for voting, they didn't do it. What did they do? They did tax cuts. Tax cuts aren't bad, but tax cuts aren't the be-all and end-all. They're not. They're, they're, they're the be-all and end-all for the, the Wall Street guys and for the big business guys and all those folks. So when they had the chance, Nancy Pelosi, excuse me, Paul Ryan stepped away. He didn't secure the border. He didn't build the wall. He didn't fund the wall. He did all these things. But, but you know, when you think about the impact to our country of this coming, uh, upcoming election, if there's ballot harvesting and, and uh, rolling voter registration and all kinds of things that are abusing the process, you won't just lose a couple of seats here and there. You'll lose Pennsylvania and Florida and Wisconsin and Michigan and the presidency. So what's at stake and what you need to know is not, well, did you, you know, did you wonder, was it, you know, is it, is it kind of, couldn't we've done this or that? Nancy Pelosi shows what it means to use power when you don't have principles. Paul Ryan shows what you do when you have power and use it and you lie about your principles because his principles weren't the pro-life. Well, what he did with his power was not to live up to what he said. His principles were on pro-life, protecting the Republic and all the rest. And, and all of that is not to look back. It's to look forward. And to understand that elections have consequences. And in the fall, for those people that are saying, well, you know, it's I mean, it's been pretty good, but it's just, you know, I think we shut down too quick and the economy's bad because Fauci this or we did that because of Burks. That's not what's at stake. What's at stake is the republic. And what's at stake is that we have a president who has forced the swamp out into the open. They've had to come out into the open. They've had to go on CNN. They've had to go out and make themselves clear. Brennan, Clapper, Biden, Susan Rice, Samantha Powers, all these people. And that fight has to continue, but it will only work if the members in the House and Senate not only are of the right party, but believe that the uh, positions and the principles are worth living up to. Someone's on, on, uh, on social media, on Periscope, is asking, do you have a good conservative, Kevin McCarthy? I think Kevin McCarthy can be a good conservative if we make him be a good conservative, if you get my point. If he's got President Trump and a conservative Senate, a more conservative Senate, and, we, and the caucus is there, he will follow the lead of his caucus. But we have to demand that his caucus get where we want them to be. That's what you need to know. All right, I got to take a break. We'll be back. We're going to come back. We got a lot on the radio show. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Be back in a minute. Ed Martin and the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. Uh, welcome back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. We have a very interesting conversation today. I figured, you know, I was reminding people that uh, Monday will be the anniversary of the 100th, 100th anniversary of John Paul II, Carol Wotia, his birth, May 18th, 1920 is when he was born. And 
of all the people through down through time, he probably as Pope in, in the last hundred years and since he was born, he's played the sort of largest role in terms of uh, engaging the political discourse. I mean, people, you know, when he wrote uh, some of his key encyclicals and when you people, you thought about the threat of communism and, and totalitarianism, but also the challenge on life and other things. And so I thought it was a good topic. Uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen is uh, joining us and he has a couple different titles that he wears. One of them is executive editor of EWTN uh, News, and he's been involved in Catholic communications uh, for quite a long time. Uh, so how are you, sir? Welcome to the program. I'm very well. It's a very always happy to talk about St. John Paul II. Well, let me ask you about that first before we get into. I was going to ask you. I'm going to ask you about Joe Biden and uh, yeah. and his own uh, you know expressions of his own faith. But how do you think history is regarding John Paul II? For a period of time, he was so clearly tied to Reagan, Thatcher, the fall of communism. Uh, but you know, mm -hmm. time passes. And how do you th how do you think he's he's fitting into history right now? Well, I think uh, in secular media, uh, we do see mm -hmm. sometimes uh, criticisms of, of St. John Paul II, uh, mm -hmm. especially relating to the clergy sexual abuse crisis. I think, uh, sure. as we have seen, though, uh, that record has been not necessarily vindicated, but I think we've been able to provide a lot more context, especially as the Church has dealt with it more effectively in the last few years. The other criticism I think that the, he has always encountered on the part of the secular media has been uh, his remarkable position on the human person. That was one of the pillars of his uh, time as pope, where he was warning the world, basically, uh, about the threats to the dignity of the human person. And what I find so interesting is that here he was in the last century warning us about threats to the human person. And now, because we really didn't listen to him, we have huge mm -hmm. questions being raised about the very nature of the human person. It would have been unimaginable when he was Pope, for example. He died just 15 years ago, but imagine, where, consider where we are now, that you can change your gender simply by choice. And you mm -hmm. expect culture to accept it. And in fact, we're crafting laws now that will force you uh, to accept that. But that's something that John Paul II really warned about. Uh, and and where it was and I, so I, I was going to go a different direction, but let me come back on, on, on to this because you've sent me down this course. Dr. Matthew Bunsen is who we're talking to, and again, I'll get in a moment to. Uh, he's executive editor of the EWTN News, and and he uh, wanted to ask him about Joe Biden. But let me get to it this way. Uh, one of the columns that you wrote recently, I saw a blog post uh, that you uh, wrote, was about Bishop Tom Paprocki, uh, who is the bishop. Uh, over in Springfield, Illinois. And so about, a, well, I don't know, about um, a year ago, uh, so this is a blog post from uh, last June, but about a year ago he faced, uh, there was a vote on a, on a pro-life bill in Illinois, and you were writing about right. his decree at the time. And, you know, one of the things that John Paul II did was he was, he was unafraid, and he used it as his motto, to engage the political <laughs> culture. Right. He, didn't, he didn't see a division. And Paprocki does the same thing in a certain sense, but many bishops... Uh, don't. And they don't confront somebody like Joe Biden who says he's pro-life or says he's Catholic, maybe, and yet supports these terrible, uh, un, you know, unlife-giving positions. Is it a change in our leadership and the Catholic leadership or religious leadership over the last 50 years? Have we seen it diminish or is it always like this? What's the state of play? Yeah, I think the, the best way to put it is uh, we have seen uh, figures such as uh, the Kennedys, uh, who were uh, commanding the high ground, certainly in Catholic political life. You know, John F. Kennedy carried about 90-some percent of the Catholic vote in 1960. Issues, 
such as we have today, like abortion in particular, but euthanasia and other things, uh, weren't really on the radar at the time. So we began mm-hmm. to see this sea change. Uh, if you go all the way back to the 1980s, which in 1984 with uh, what you can call now the, the Cuomo proposal, uh, in which uh, a lot of quasi-Catholic or self-proclaimed, self-identified Catholics would say, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion as a Catholic, but I can't stand in the way of what is uh, the law or what is the public policy. Then the question Mm -hmm. fell to a lot of individual bishops as to how they're going to deal with that. And we have seen things all over the map uh, as to how bishops want to engage with this. And and frankly, it it depends on their interpretation of church law uh, and how they choose to deal with politicians. It can be the source of frustration for some Catholics. Uh, Certainly we see with Bishop Paprocki, uh, that uh, he was very clear uh, with politicians that if you are supporting things like abortion, uh, we ask that you do not go to communion. And I think he mm-hmm. roots that not just in uh, the church law, but also in a very important document that came out under John Paul II, and that's Catholics and Political Life, where you can't have this sort of schizophrenia. On the one hand, of saying that you're Catholic and I'm a, I'm a good Catholic, and on the other hand, do everything you can to support uh, things like abortion, contraception, and euthanasia. And again, we're we're uh, we're talking uh, to uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. How's it play out in the national spotlight? You know, in other words, Cuomo. You mentioned Mario Cuomo was someone who sort of started this problem. He said, "I'm personally pro-life, but I can't tell anyone else to do." Well, okay, you know, give me a break. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That you stay in your closet, you know, stay curled up in the fetal fetal position is better than in the, in the closet. That's too many echoes. But uh, but so how's it play out public? I mean, Joe Biden, he's got he's got positions that are completely opposed to the Catholic Church's teaching, and yet, is there a single bishop? Who says anything about him? I don't know one. I don't know one right now. Well, that's going to be the big question for the bishops uh, as uh, Joe Biden secures the, the formal nomination this coming summer. Uh, we saw uh, last fall uh, that the bishops at their gathering in Baltimore for their annual meeting uh, once again mm-hmm. reiterated that the abortion must be the preeminent issue of our time, if for no other reason, just because of the, just the sheer numbers you're talking about almost a million and a half abortions every year. As public policy goes, uh, clearly that is a, a massive crisis for the country, but from a moral standpoint, too. So I think what we're likely to see is a renewal of the same type of debate that we had in 2004 uh, over the nomination of John Kerry for president, uh, in which some bishops uh, chose to ask him not to receive communion. Others uh, tried to adopt what they anyway thought or considered to be uh, a softer or more discursive type of approach to it. So I, I would be surprised if we don't see something similar happen uh, in this campaign uh, that we saw in 2004. Hmm, that's an interesting prediction because you certainly didn't see, I mean, it was a different kind of, uh, well, it was a different kind of election in 2016 for lots of reasons. I mean, there could have been, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't as stark. I mean, I think there was a way that some, uh, I didn't believe it, but some could say, well, in 2015, 2016, they weren't sure that Donald Trump would be pro-life, right? But at this point, you know, the proof is in the four years of uh, of being in office, and then Biden's got his record. So the contrast is bigger. That's a bit interesting prediction, because in 2004, it did become uh, more contentious. Um, all right, now let me ask you, how do you how do you respond? You know, you're an observer. Again, we're, 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 um, I'm talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who is executive editor of EWTN News and is a writer and a, and a communicator uh, in the Catholic Church and broadly in the culture. Um, 
the, the sh- this sort of quarantine where churches are not having their gatherings, you know, and we're seeing some of the pressure from the people wanting to get back to churches. But it's a, it's just been a fascinating, challenging moment. I mean, you know, and I know EWTN, of course, has probably experienced the highest ratings they've had because, I, you know, my family's watched EWTN in this time more than we had in the past and lots of things. But what do you think happens when we get back? I mean, do you think that we've seen even in, you know, if, if restaurants are going to change because of this, the fears, you know, churches are going to change, too. What do you, do you have any predictions or thoughts? I do. I, I think uh, we're already starting to see a number of dioceses and archdioceses um, beginning this process of what it's going to look like uh, to go to Mass. And now it's going to be very regional for some time. New Jersey and much of the Northeast is likely to be still shut down for a while, whereas in places uh, west, such as we saw with Las Cruces, which became the real pathfinder for this, under Bishop Aldequino, uh, they had resumed Masses. The guidelines, mm. if anyone really wants to get a sense, I think, of what this is going to look like, I would say go to the Thomistic Institute, you can find them online, mm-hmm. and they have a series of pastoral guidelines uh, that many bishops, I think, have embraced because the, they find a balance between caution of the prudence in keeping the congregation safe, as well as, the, say, the priest who's saying the Mass, but at the same time giving due reverence uh, to the Eucharist and to the liturgy. We had Cardinal Sarah, hmm. who's a very famous figure in the Church, come out publicly and say that some of these proposals that uh, have been floated about how to distribute communion, for example, in a few places in Germany that are already doing it, uh, for example, putting the consecrated host, so this for us is the, the most sacred thing, uh, into Ziploc bags and handing them to the faithful, he described as total madness, uh, because it, hmm. it, it's really it borders on blasphemy to do this. Uh, so we have to find a way that uh, we maintain that due reverence and uh, awe of the, of the Eucharist, while at the same time keeping everyone safe. So these guidelines mm-hmm. that the Tunisic Institute has put forward, I think, are, are very sensible. Uh, they're, they're sort of very matter-of-fact, and they're both a combination of theologians and liturgists, those who work on things like worship, but also with epidemiologists and physicians try to find that balance, and I think they do. So my prediction would be, my assumption is, that many of the bishops are going to have models for their own diocese and their parishes that, that look at that balance. You're going to have some places where you have uh, no communion distributed. You'll have a few places mm-hmm. where you're going to have communion that's distributed at the end of Mass rather than during it. And then you'll have some places where communion is distributed right. regularly. I don't think we'll see communion on the tongue for a while, sometime. Nor, I suspect, will we see communion of the wine, communion wine distributed, uh, what we call right. under both species, and the technical term for, for Catholics. So it'll be right. the bread, so it'll be communion wafers only. Uh, and that, that's important because it's a lot of people find that, uh, they, they really love uh, the, the blessed, the sacred blood. But, mm-hmm. again, we have to bow to practicality. So I think we're going to see a lot of experiments. I think we'll see a lot of bishops trying different things. Uh, but at the end, I think the congregations are going to be so happy to be going back to Mass under any form yeah. uh, that it, right. I think there will be a lot of patience with us. It will be, it will be very interesting. All right, I've got to run. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, thank you for your time. Executive Editor at EWTN News. And uh, we'll be watching, and, and uh, thanks for all you're doing. We appreciate it. Very good to be with you. Take care. Thank you. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. 
This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin's Pro-America Report. Our old friend Ron Kessler is back. I haven't talked to him in a while, and I'm glad to hear from him now because he's got a great piece up. If you follow Ronald Kessler on uh, Twitter, at Ronald Kessler, he, of course, is the New York Times bestselling author of a lot of books. Uh, one, The more recent one is the Trump White House. It's really a, a good inside look. It's not the hysterical ones that you see that uh, they run around up in New York uh, touting. This is uh, He had a lengthy interview with President Trump himself and wrote about the Trump White House. Uh, he also wrote a book, Ron Kessler did, about uh, the Secret Service. And if you go to ronaldkessler.com, by the way, you can find all those books. But the piece that's up right now is in the Washington Times, uh, Ron Kessler writing about the Secret Service and a particular, uh, what do you call him, a uh, customer of the Secret Service. So first of all, welcome, Ron. How are you? Hey, great to be with you, Ed, and thank you for that nice introduction. Well, you're welcome. Uh, and... and um, there's so many different things. I love talking to you because your books cover a range. You know, the one on uh, on uh, Palm Beach and all. There's just so many things to cover. But let's talk about this piece in the Washington Times. You know the Secret Service. You interviewed, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, I don't know, hours of, of interviews with agents and all in looking at Secret Service years ago. But this piece is about Joe Biden. So walk us through what you know and what your sources tell you. What the Secret Service knows about Joe Biden behind the scenes is quite different from the image that he tries to project. He wants to project this regular Joe image, the jovial uh, Joe Biden image, just the opposite behind the scenes. Now, he's not as nasty to agents as Hillary is. And for that reason, Hillary's details consider the, the worst assignment in the Secret Service. But Joe Biden's details considered the second worst assignment in the Secret Service because on the one hand, he, he does chat them up. He does uh, invite their kids to the White House back when he was vice president. But he had this habit of abruptly deciding he wants to go back to Wilmington, to his home, which he would do several times a week very frequently. And the agents could not plan their social lives. They could not have any kind of uh, social life whatsoever because, you know, they come into work. And they expect to go home at the end of the day. Now, all of a sudden, he says, we're going to Wilmington. And, and the Secret Service had to rent 20 condominiums uh, near Wilmington just to put up the agents for these uh, impromptu uh, uh, you know, visits. And, of course, it shows just a, a t- total lack of consideration, as well as the fact that uh, he would uh, skinny dip in front of female Secret Service agents on a regular basis, both in Washington and his home outside of Wilmington. You know, they uh, were offended by that. They signed signed up to take a bullet for the president, but not to see Joe Biden naked. And so all that tells you a lot about about his character. And and really the worst thing, um, the skinny dipping, you know, was picked up when the book came out, uh, but it was sort of ha, ha, ha. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it, it shows... Uh, just just uh, over overwhelming uh, arrogance. Uh, but the most shocking thing that, that the media have not picked up on is that um, in order to preserve this regular Joe jovial image, Biden would insist when they go back to Wilmington that the motorcade be only two vehicles and that the military aid with the nuclear football stay at least a mile behind. And this would happen several times a week. 
And during that time, we would have been defenseless if Obama had been taken out or or could not uh, could not uh, operate. Just just the most incredibly irresponsible, shocking behavior. Uh, what you know, the only the only um, uh, obligation of the vice president under the uh, Constitution is to take over if the if the uh, president uh, is incapacitated or, or, or assassinated, and yet here he is uh, taking a chance that we could be wiped out by uh, nuclear missiles because we could not retaliate because there would never be time for the military aid with nuclear football to catch up with Biden, even if there were no traffic in this in this motorcade. Uh, we're talking with Ron Kessler, and again, ronaldkessler.com is his uh, website where you can see all his many books. Uh, let me, I want to back up and cover both of these things. What is it with these guys, uh, I mean, uh, swimming naked? I mean, Lyndon Johnson used to like to skinny dip in front of uh, female um, staff and others. I mean, is this just like, I guess I guess if you're that powerful or, or, or in that power that long, you get you get immune to being somewhat normal? Like, I, I don't really want to skinny dip in front of anybody myself. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a repressed Catholic kid. But, it, I mean, is it just, uh, I mean, it, what is your sense, Ron? You've been around a lot of powerful people. Is it just kind of, is it a kind of callousness? It's not... I mean, is it per, is it perversion? What is it? I, I think you know the, the people who who choose to run for president uh, do tend to have this this incredible arrogance and 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 to feel that they're not accountable, uh, and and that's what we see. We saw it with Richard Nixon, certainly. We uh, we saw it with Johnson pursuing the Vietnam War, even though there was no uh, security interest uh, at stake. Um, but in the end, it's it's secret secret service that that does know the real story that does pick up on on these things. They're like human uh, surveillance cameras, and I think all this tells you a lot about the Tara Reid allegation, namely that uh, Biden thought he could get away with anything, whether it was the skinny dipping or whether it was not uh, allowing the nuclear football within a mile of his motorcade. I mean, unbelievable uh, arrogance. You know what? What does that? What, uh, what? What does that mean? Why would he care? Why would he care that that uh, that it's not near him? He didn't want to look like he was in a big crowd, or what is it? What is yeah, the reason? That's Can right. You tell? That's right. Yeah, he didn't want. He didn't want to appear to be to have this official motorcade. He wanted. He wanted to preserve this image of Raymond oh. Joe. I mean, it's crazy, crazy thinking. But 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 that's what it was. You know. Uh, hmm. You know, it's like. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just take a vacation from being a vice president and just, just kick back and, and, and do like whatever I, I want kind of thing. <laughs> uh, now like it's, it's, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, again, we're talking with Ron Kessler and uh, at Ronald Kessler on uh, Twitter and Ronald Kessler.com on, uh, his website, which is his books and things there. Let me ask you about that for one second. You've observed again, these, these men and women up close, you know, you know, you knew Donald Trump 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, Joe Biden, when you see the coverage of Biden, you know, the gaffes he has, and sometimes the gaffes can be put together in such a way to, you know, we all misspeak and they put them together and make it look, but then, then you look and you say, he doesn't seem to be as sharp. Is that an observation that you can journalistically say that Biden, he just doesn't look like he's on the top of his game now? Yeah, there's no question about it. It's not just normal uh, misstatements that we all make. It, it's just constant, constant confusion. You know, whether to, today or yesterday, he said uh, something about millions of, there have been millions of deaths. Now, how can you poss- possibly say that? Um, right. it, there's no question there's, there's a problem with the 
with his brain, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so um, I, I think that that's just going to get worse as time as time goes on. And by the way, in contrast to this arrogance, uh, both Donald Trump and Barack Obama do treat their agents with respect and consideration. Uh, you know, I, 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 I write books that are truthful, and, and if Obama did something good, I say that. Uh, and uh, in, in the case of, uh, of Trump, uh, we were with him at the, uh, barber, the um, uh, uh, buffet at the Trump International Golf Course uh, in West right. Palm Beach. And there's a spectacular buffet, everything from oysters to prime steaks. And uh, near the end, he told his agents to go help themselves, as well as the agents protecting his family members. So we're talking about dozens and dozens of agents. Uh, that's the kind of consideration that he shows uh, towards agents. Yeah. And by the way, yeah. I, I asked Trump when I was at Mar-a-Lago with him one time, how do you like being protected by the Secret Service? He said, it's great. You know, I'll be playing golf and there'll be 20 agents all around me and they're all looking in different directions so they don't see if I miss a ball. <laughs> if I miss a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, if it was Bill Clinton, he wouldn't, they wouldn't know, they would, they would, wouldn't, wouldn't see if he, you know, kicked the ball up there. But I don't know if Trump does that, but that's, uh, that's really funny. All right, Ron Kessler, thank you. As always, we're coming on. It's so interesting. At Ronald Kessler on Twitter, uh, RonaldKessler.com on, uh, on the internet, to, on his website to get his books. Uh, we'll have you back on again. Uh, the, uh, a man who knows the inside of the White House, the inside of Mar-a-Lago is pretty unique. So uh, appreciate it, Ron. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Ed. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a minute. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily look at the significant issues of our time from an experienced conservative perspective. Sponsored by Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this broadcast continues the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly and stands against forces that mock traditional values, slander America, and redefine the family. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. My hope and prayer is that the COVID-19 crisis can be used to strengthen the resolve and faith of the American people. I would never wish for this to happen to our nation, but I believe God can use tragedy to bring forth something good. Unfortunately, some people want to use the coronavirus to destroy everything good and virtuous in America. Spoiler alert, George Soros is behind this. The radical feminist Sophie Lewis used a Soros-funded digital media platform to suggest that we should use the coronavirus quarantine as a reason to abolish the traditional nuclear family. I'm not exaggerating what she said. I'm not taking anything out of context. She literally said this. We deserve better than the family. And the time of Corona is an excellent time to practice abolishing it. She went on to justify her claim by linking the coronavirus quarantine to a spike in domestic violence. That's where this Sophie Lewis goes completely off the rails. From there, she makes the wild leap that the home is not a safe place for women and children because, given enough time together, all men will eventually be violent. Domestic violence is awful to the core, but you can't use the exception to disprove the rule. Although domestic violence is a very serious crime and should be harshly punished, the vast majority of men will never abuse their wives or children. In fact, if you look at the numbers, you'll see that unmarried women with live-in boyfriends are significantly more likely to be abused. If we want to protect women, 
A home based on a solid marriage is what we should wish for them. For the vast majority of women and children, the home is a refuge like no other. It's a place of safety and freedom and equality. The feminists don't try to destroy the family because they want to help women. No, they try to destroy the family because they're bitter and lonely, and they want all women to be just like them. Using the tragedy of coronavirus and the outrage of domestic violence to push their bitter feminist goals is simply beyond pitiful. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The traditional family is the building block of our communities and country. That's why it's imperative to support strong marriages, respect fathers, and champion stay-at-home moms. At phyllisschlafly.com, we oppose the liberal attempt to redefine the family. To join us, visit phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. The Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. I, you know, I have to play this clip for you uh, because it's important. And Operation Warp Speed is what is going to we'll look back, I hope, in history and say we had the Manhattan Project to stop the World War, World War II. Unbelievable brain power, unbelievable massive spending, figure out how to do the atomic bomb and stop the war. And we're going to have Operation Warp Speed that President Trump today uh, talked about and in a press conference earlier today. I want to play this clip. I'll come back and wrap it up for you. But I want you to hear this because I want you to get in your head how important this is. I think in history, I'm hopeful this will be one thing we look back on and go, huh, that's when they did something different than they'd ever done before. Hey, play that clip for us, Todd, please. Through a historic series of funding bills, my administration is providing roughly $10 billion to support a medical research effort without parallel. I especially want to thank Senator Steve Daines of Montana for his incredible work. He has worked so hard to secure additional funding for vaccine development. He has been right at the forefront. Today, I want to update you on the next stage of this momentous medical initiative. It's called Operation Warp Speed. That means big and it means fast. A massive scientific, industrial, and logistical endeavor unlike anything our country has seen since the Manhattan Project. You really could say that nobody's seen anything like we're doing, whether it's ventilators or testing. Nobody's seen anything like we're doing now within our country since the Second World War. Incredible. Its objective is to finish developing and then to manufacture and distribute a proven coronavirus vaccine as fast as possible. Again, we'd love to see if we could do it prior to the end of the year. We think we're going to have some very good results coming out very quickly. I wanted to play that clip for you because I wanted that was in the White House Rose Garden, the president during a press conference. And the key is this Operation Warp Speed, which, as he mentioned, Senator Steve Daines from Montana was a big part of and and getting the funding and all. It's a massive brain and money focus on a vaccine. Now, here's the challenge. We've never had a coronavirus vaccine because there have been a lot of coronaviruses. They're hard to find. It's hard to do. But we've never had a coronavirus this bad. 
So we've had to step up our game. In other words, you know, could we in the past have found a coronavirus uh, vaccine? Maybe, but we didn't have the intensity of the need coupled with the resources focused on it. So, you know, for those listeners that are uh, that, that pay it close attention, you know that uh, I my wife is a physician. And uh, my wife, I said, to, I asked her about this about two weeks ago when we had Dr. Paul Kengor on the radio show. Uh, he has on a segment. And if you go back and look, uh, go to the answer, San Diego.com, you can see his uh, his uh, interview there. And Kengor was talking about how important this was. And he's a historian and a political scientist. Um, so but I mentioned to my wife and I said, what do you think? And she said and I said, I don't think we can do it. You know, we never did that. We, if we if we could have done a vaccine for coronavirus. And my wife's answer was, you don't understand, she said to me. How much science has progressed in like 10 years, you know, certainly in 20 years it's gone on. And so and she said, if you put billions of dollars on a project with the amount of unbelievable brain power we have and the technology we have and the computer models we have and the ability to look inside stuff and on and on. on, She said, yeah, we could do it. It's going to be a big deal when we do it. And it's not going to be easy. Uh, but that's the point. So that's why I want to play that clip. And, you know, there's the, the as you watch that go forward, if you go back and read the histories of the Manhattan Project, the histories of the polio vaccine, there's there's dozens and dozens of people who play these unbelievable keystone roles. You know, they're key roles. If that keystone, you know, if a keystone isn't in an arch, the arch falls, right? You know, that's what a keystone is. And so when you have these keystone people along the way, they, they're not as famous as Jonas Salk. You know, they're not as famous as, um, you know, Einstein or, or, or uh, any of the, you know, the famous Manhattan Project uh, folks. They're not, they're, they're, their names won't be household names, but they are famous in the sense that they won't be forgotten as, in terms of the history. That's what I think you can expect to see coming out of the um, Operation Warp Speed. And even, I think... You got to think that Trump loves this kind of challenge, you know, because once you get a vaccine, one of the things that happens right after you get it is logistically, how do you make it and distribute it? He's already said, if you heard him, the military's in there for logistics. So he's going to make this thing happen. So that's going to be interesting to watch. All right. Thank you, as always, to our uh, listeners and for you listening, paying attention. Go to TheAnswerSanDiego.com. Go wherever you get podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, get the show, search for it, Pro America Report. Thank you to Todd for filling in today and helping us as our technical director, Joanna for booking us and our guests and all. And we'll be back. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you Monday.